Welcome to Hot Springs Village Inside Out, a weekly podcast where Hot Springs Village, Arkansas is the star. Join me, Randy Cantrell, and my co-host Dennis Simpson as we discuss the history, facts, people, places, events, lots more surrounding Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. Visit the website at hotspringsvillageinsideout.com. Today's show is brought to you by Central Arkansas's favorite radio station, KVRE. Find them on the dial at 92.9 FM. Stream them live at kvre.com. Our guest today is Thomas E. Clark. Tom is an award-winning landscape architect who led the design of the golf courses inside the village. And he's our guest today. We welcome Tom to the show. Tom, we're thrilled that we finally got you on and We've dropped the ball a few times and, uh, you are, you are in satellite internet zone, which ha- has had a few challenges. So we appreciate you burning <laughs> bandwidth with us, um, golfers inside the village. Happy to do it. Thank you. Golfers inside the village. And even those of us that don't golf have been, uh, have been thrilled that John Paul made the introduction here. So let's kick this thing off. How did you get started with hot Springs village, Arkansas? Well, it was probably 1974. Um, I had gone to work for Edmund B. Alt, golf architect in Silver Spring, Maryland. And for the first several years, I was pretty much sequestered to the desk uh, because he was so far behind um, in his workload that I didn't get out much. But about 1974, he started taking me on some trips, which was very enlightening. And then one of the first trips we went to was to Bella Vista, Arkansas. And I met Mr. Cooper Sr. up there. We had a, a breakfast meeting. Uh, we stayed at the Holiday Inn, and I guess Mr. Cooper had a regular breakfast up there uh, every morning. And uh, just as a little aside, I'll never forget there was a couple that joined us, and uh, you know we started chatting about this upcoming course called Cortez. And, you know, I excused myself, went down the hall to the restroom and came back and there was a little break in the action. And I told Mr. Ott, I said, you know, that couple across the, you know, table from us, their pictures on the wall there. He said, oh, that guy owns a hardware store, Ben Franklin or something. And as you know, it turned out to be Sam Walton and his wife, Helen. So I guess they had breakfast on a regular basis with Mr. Cooper. Um, And um, Mr. Cooper outlined what he wanted in the way of a great golf course. Uh, Mr. Alt had already done DeSoto at Hot Springs Village. And for Cortez, he said, I want something that, you know, the whole country is going to notice. And, you know, we started throwing out some ideas and uh, subsequently, we got back to our office, and Mr. Alt disappeared for another week. And I basically sketched some thoughts and ideas out and reviewed some of these things when he came back. And you have to realize this is very early in my career, and I hadn't been out. I had played golf uh, my whole life, uh, not at a lot of private clubs, but you know, a lot of public courses. I had seen some things, but I hadn't seen a lot. But I knew enough about um, some of the special features that were on some courses. I had 
uh, lived in Maryland for the first couple of years, and then I moved to Virginia uh, for the last 45 years. And uh, I had gone down and played a course called the Golden Horseshoe, which had an island green. And I said, why don't we put one of those on, you know, this course? And he said, well, I got one better. And he said, why don't we have a floating green? So my research led me to call, uh, I think, some barge companies in the Arkansas River. And they had some, I guess, derelict barges that they were willing to part with. And, of course, the difficulty was getting them up to Hot Springs Village. So we had rigged this thing with cables that we could move this green um, pretty much anywhere in the lake. And this is on hole number eight. Yeah, about to say um, number eight, at, yeah. Um, at, at Cortez. And we investigated back then. They had these styrofoam docks or whatever that you could adjust the length. And so if we had a hole that was 130 yards or whatever, we could you know, have them walk out and walk back on that. And if we moved it to 150, we could add a couple sections. So it was very realistic. And we figured, you know, these barges, you know, used to haul coal and we would just fill them with material and then put our greens mix and everything in there and have a surrounds of, you know, some landscaping and everything. Well, uh, for some reason that didn't happen. And I don't know, uh, you know the history, but when we built Cortez, I think it was green number seven and green number eight, we wound up with what we call beach bunkers. Well, that wasn't necessarily the best idea uh, because, you know, with the waves and stuff that even happened in those small lakes, they started eroding and pretty soon they became just sand bunkers. But we had all kinds of waterfalls and things basically uh, conceptually designed at Cortez. And, you know, I was very excited because this didn't seem like golf architecture to me. It was more fantasy. And a lot of that, you know, whether it was budget, I'm not sure why a lot of it didn't get built, but a lot did. So I got to go out to Cortez uh, two times with Mr. Aldis, a regular site visit, and actually once I got my first vacation after four years and I went and drove across the country and stopped in Hot Springs Village and got to see it under construction on my own. So that was the beginning, uh, really, of my uh, involvement with Hot Springs Village. Um, and then after that, the next course, I believe, was Balboa um, and Mr. Alt at that time was pretty much um, done with traveling. Um, and he kind of turned the reins over to me, which was very fortunate for me um, because that led to, I guess, doing over 24 courses, you know, for the Cooper family. And it's just basically Hot Springs Village is still what I consider my um, favorite, you know, of the villages because of its size. And if you look at, I guess, the uh, the plan from, you know, an aerial perspective, you can see DeSoto, you know, on the far west end and then Cortez a little further in. And then they started building golf course after golf course. They were almost touching. So it just became a uh, a model that, you know, Cooper, you know, continued to 
uh, developed through all their new villages was basically building golf and building lakes. And of course, you know, um, from a golfer's perspective, you know, we would get the property that, you know, was not necessarily the best for residential development. So we got a lot of the stream valleys and a lot of the low areas and, um, you know, we had to, you know, make that work, which was fine. We were fortunate enough just to get the opportunity to do it, but to make it function, we had to drain it. And that was one of the key things, Mr. Alt. And I think one of the reasons that he was so popular with Mr. Cooper, um, and I, you know, had tried to do a little research on how they actually met. And I was telling Randy earlier, there was a development, not a development, there was property out here on the East Coast. And it happens to be in the same county that I live in now. It's called Fauquier County. And it was called North Wales. And it was the old Chrysler estate. Now, Fauquier County is one of those counties that is, I call it the landed gentry. Uh, the Gettys live here. The Mellons live here. And you just don't develop in this county because they like to hunt. And what I mean by hunt is ride to the hounds. And, you know, that's part of where I live, that I have to grant ease, easements to the horsemen and their hounds. And, you know, hunting season, it's a wild time out here. But Mr. Cooper, I'm sure, was not used to getting turned down, but they did submit a uh, request to develop that property and were shut down. And subsequently, years later, he sold it to the folks from Disney who said, oh, we'll get it done. Well, they got shut down. So it wasn't doable. But I think that is the introduction for Mr. Old and Mr. Cooper. But... During that time, Ed Alt was what I call a very frugal golf architect. He was a great amateur golfer in the Washington metropolitan area. He got a reputation. Uh, he thought he could do this actually as a living. He used to work for Pepco, the utility company, as an engineer. And then he just took on golf course projects. Now, when I went to work for Ed Alt, his fee was $6,000 for a golf course and we could build a course back then for like $320,000. Now, you've heard some figures, I'm sure, in the years that you've been involved, that courses today can cost upwards of 12 and $20 million, and some have spent a lot more. But at all, would get it done. And, you know, one of the reasons, well, we didn't, you know, have an elaborate irrigation. He didn't trust those electric irrigation systems. He said, you need an electrician to run those. So we'll just do manual. So you get to hire somebody who goes out all night and waters. So that would be like a little single row system. He never put sand in the bunkers because we'd have to cut that sod out, you know, and patch the golf course. It was all seeded. Um, and basically, uh, there was no card pass because he said, well, the people let you know where they want to go and then you go pave those. So aside from the clearing and the development of the courses, and this was the interesting thing because Cooper, you know, had construction people, they were used to building roads. Uh, they were used to developing property. So we use them to build our golf courses. Well, that's a little challenging because 
you know, it's an art form to build a golf course and we need what's called shapers. Well, they had people that were used to making road cuts and, you know, straight lines, and you know, um, so a lot of those people, it was a learning curve when we would put stakes out in the field and say, okay, these are the rolls and humps and bumps and bunkering of a golf course. Now, as I said, they had no problem clearing them. They had no problem basically putting in some sleeves of pipe, but they certainly uh, were challenged when it came to building, you know, the greens. But it was one of those, you know, fortunate things that, you know, came to being. And Balboa, it's like the story unto itself. When we built Balboa, they did sub out the irrigation system to somebody local who didn't believe that the, the pipes, you know, had like bells and he just didn't realize you were supposed to stick the other end of the pipe in that. So he cut those off and glued them. Well, Balboa, I think, had over, you know, 1,500 leaks like the first couple of years. So the irrigation system was a bit of a disaster. And the big problem that happened with Balboa um, was the fact that after we had just finished sprigging and seeding the whole golf course, we had a a biblical storm, and I believe it was a 15-inch rain over two days. Well, all the sprigs and all the topsoil um, wound up at the low point on the golf course, which at the time was our 11th hole. And it took them the rest of the fall and the next spring to basically put all that material back, temporary seeded, and wait until um, the following summer until they could re-sprig it. So I believe that was why Balboa never really got uh, what I say finished. It didn't get all the sand bunkers filled uh, because, you know, I think a lot of the budget, it was an act of God, but it wasn't totally insured. So a lot of the money, I think, went to actually to rebuild it. What it was, was the time? What was the time frame on that, Tom? What was the time frame on that? Like, when did that flood happen? Balbo was, I think, finished in 87. Uh, I think it started like in 85, and we lost that whole year. In 86, then we sprigged it, and I think it finally opened in 87. Um, Frank Wells, as I said, was the superintendent um, at the time, and he wound up re-sprigging it and growing it in. Um, I mean, the perfect example on Balboa, the very first hole, um, there was a pipe. Um, it was a dual fairway. If you went down the left side, it was a possibility to get home in two. If you went on the right, it was definitely a three-shot par five. Well, the pipe that went across the fairway completely blew out during that storm, as did the one in the driving range, and they never put it back. So people didn't really elect to go down that right side because they had to carry, you know, over that uh, open stream. So things happen. And that's, you know, the course of uh, the nature, I guess, of uh, any golf course. And uh, there's a story with each and every one of them. Um, well, Tom, let, let me interrupt just for one sec. Was there ever a time in the early days when you looked around and I mean, Cortez at that time, as gorgeous as it was, is in the middle of nowhere. Did you look around and go, man, is this going to work? Or, or is it, is this man, is Mr. Cooper's check cleared? Is this going to work? 
Well, that's a very good question because, as I said, it was the first, you know, thing there. They had built some road, obviously, to get uh, access to that area. Um, see, everything was thought out. And as I said, Cooper's success, I think, was the people they hired, uh, or the people that work for them. Um, they had some very good engineers and they had, you know, people that acted as land planners. Um, they obviously were instrumental in the development of the lakes. They worked hand in hand with me on the routing of the golf course. I mean, this was all primitive, I guess, warehouse or timber property that Mr. Cooper had bought relatively inexpensively. But, you know, we had what's called five foot contour interval, which isn't really conducive for grading a golf course, but we made it work. Um, and then, yes, I did look at, you know, thinking, okay, well, you've got, I don't know, 15,000 acres more. So obviously you're headed, you know, in that direction. So DeSoto's here and you've sold a heck of a lot of lots and there's a lot of homes built around that. You have a beautiful, you know, entrance off the highway and, you know, you're just moving to the east and continually um, that's what happened. But yeah, I can say that Cortez was there by itself for a while until, you know, development started springing up around it. And that's what happens that, you know, one house gets built and then all of a sudden Cooper had one of the greatest sales teams I've ever seen. And they moved from village to village. I mean, they would entice people out of, I guess, middle America up north to come to a temperate climate, which is basically Hot Springs, Arkansas, or even Bella Vista and, you know, buy property. And, you know, and with that, they got away from, you know, those cold Chicago winters or Detroit or somewhere, but they could drive home and still see the family. Uh, but, you know, they, you know, were going to retire and live in a, uh, a golf rich and a lake rich if you fished. And if you played golf, that was great. And, you know, at one time I said, you know, if you don't play golf, what kind of the life do you really have in Hot Springs Village? And, you know, as it turns out, you know, there's hundreds of other avocations and clubs and things that have sprung up over the years. So if you like to whittle pencils, then, you know, there's a club for you. And so there's basically, you know, that's how these communities uh, get forward and uh, the progression. But, you know, the nuts and bolts of it was really the golf courses and, you know, the continuation of, you know, building these beautiful lakes. Well, uh, the, Hot Springs, of course, had, go ahead. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I just had a couple of questions and I, I wanted to hear everything. I promise. I, number one, I, I thought you were involved in DeSoto and I was mistaken there because Mr. Clark had done that, right? <laughs> Mr. Alt. Mr. Alt. I'm sorry, Mr. Alt. Uh, but, but that's the only course that's basically not a figure eight. Did, did Cooper say we want them to be figure eight so we can sell lots on the inside and the outside? Or was that a design idea? Was that your idea? Well, it was a combination. Um, as I said, the reason I'm a golf architect is I went to Penn State University. And believe it or not, like three months before graduation, we had two golf architects come down and tell us how to integrate golf courses and home sites. 
And that was uh, Jeff Cornish and Bill Robinson. Well, Bill was a um, graduate also at Penn State University. He used to be up in our design studio at night, and I'd kind of hang out and see what he was doing and said, you know, I love this thing, this golf architecture. He said, how do I get into it? And his comment, well, you're either born into it like a son of a golf architect or you luck into it like I did. I mean, he became a partner within the three months after he uh, literally went to work for Mr. Cornish. Um, so I basically, you know, made it known that I'd like to get into the profession. And um, my professor had worked with Edmund Alt, uh, and he basically got a call from him one day saying, I need a, a, a bright young student or whatever, because I've lost my only employee. And I came down for an interview in 1971, and he offered me $6,000 to start. I said, I didn't go to college for five years for six grand. He <laughs> said, well, let's make it nine. And uh, I said, man, what a great negotiator I am. <laughs> so, of course, I had 9000 for the next four years, but that was it. <laughs> so th- that was basically, you know, the beginning of my career and um, I diverged from the question, obviously. <laughs> no, 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 it's perfect. No, um, I, I just didn't know if it was a combination. I didn't know if they said, here's what we're going to do, or if they just gave you a blank slate. You know, well, what do you want to do? I, I just, I, that's what I was asking. Well, that's said. Uh, it's basically was more of uh, they're saying, okay, here's our area for the golf course, or here's our area for the development. And we what we call massaged some of those corridors and you know to make them tie together for the golf you know you didn't want to like go from one hole and drive two miles to the next and you know so it became working hand in hand they had a a young man his name is jim abramson who i did a lot of work with he was pretty much their land planner and then there was some of their engineers this was before i think ernie got involved and it was uh, Tom Oppenheim, and then they started getting into CAD things. But the figure eight is the ideal. They would tell me we need eight miles of exposure, you know, to, to make these golf courses work. So obviously what would happen, the houses or lots that are on the golf course were a premium. You know, if you were selling a lot for $50,000 on a golf course, it might only be worth, you know, 15 or 20, you know, removed. And this is a long time ago. I mean, things are much more expensive now, but that was the parameters. It was, you know, the golf course made it double or sometimes triple the amount because people enjoyed the opportunity to live on what they call green manicured open space. Now, in these home site developments, there was only 15% of those people who lived on the course that even played golf. So it wasn't, it was just the golfer. It was the idea of like you in your background there have that beautiful lake. Well, you don't have a, a neighbor back there with a barking dog and a kid, you know, tearing your fence down. Uh, you have this beautiful panoramic view. And that's what sells property. And Cooper was very in tune to that. He knew what people wanted. Um, so as I said, the first Thing was obviously, even though you have 15,000 acres, you know, how much room is this golf course going to take? Well, our original quarters were like 300 feet. Now, this is when I started 
the average length, we have what we call landing areas from the back tee to the turning point was only 250 yards. Well, then people started hitting it further. So we moved that up to 270. And then we moved it up to 285. And then we moved it up to now over 300. <laughs> it's the golf ball and the equipment has changed. But with that, the corridors got wider. Not only can you hit the ball further, you can hit it um, you know, off center a lot further. <laughs> so now, I, as I said, our corridors are 400 feet wide, minimal. And, you know, that's exactly what happened in Hot Springs Village. You'll look at Cortez, you'll look at, you know, Magellan, you'll look at, you know, Balboa. And they were the early ones, but, you know, at the end with Granada and everything, they're uh, 400-foot corridors. Now, as I said, you can obviously afford to do that when you have that amount of acreage. You're not giving up that much, but you're getting a great product and you're getting safety. Because the last thing anybody wants is a liability issue on a golf course. And, you know, I'm still, you know, continuing to work. And that's probably the number one thing that we look at now is, you know, a lot of courses are being, you know, turned over and bought and, you know, they want to put some development around them. And, you know, we have to have proper setbacks and Cooper's always adhered to that. And I think as we got more progressive uh, probably when Ernie got involved, it was a, a good example. Ernie was a pretty good golfer who could hit the ball a mile, uh, but he could also hit it in the woods a mile. And I was on many adventures looking for it. And I think he realized that these corridors had to be wider. And consequently, um, they adhered to that. And I think, you know, the golf courses benefited from it. But yes, that figure eight was definitely their go-to. It was always returning nines because for the most part, uh, they wanted to have the opportunity to, you know, have a nine hole round, you know, um, you know, it's, you know, we even started looking at, you know, well, okay. Golfers have less and less time. Well, maybe they can only go out and play three holes. So we might have a three hole loop, that, you know, return to the clubhouse, but the nine and nine and the returning loops were basically pretty consistent as we developed all the courses. Well, let me, let me ask about Cortez number eight, because you brought that up about the floating barge idea. And Randy, I wish you and I had walked this course simply because it, number one, Cortez, in my opinion, feels like you're in a national park. It is gorgeous. It's simply gorgeous. And yes, there's undulating hills and whatever, but that really plays to the course. I mean, it, it's so well integrated into the landscape in, in my opinion, I don't know what it looked like before, but I will tell you, Randy, number eight is the psych hole. Because you, there's three, there's three tee boxes and each one of them means you're going to hit the ball over a hundred yards, well over a hundred yards onto the green behind it. But there between you, there's typically 130 yards of water. Now, any golfer who can't hit a ball, 130 yards is, is lame. I mean, that's poor, but when you get up in front of that, that, that tee and you realize I've got to hit it all the way across this water. If it's dirt, you wouldn't think a thing about it. But the the water for me kind of psychs me out. And I thought y'all were doing this at first because you were trying to sell more golf balls. Because I sure you put a lot of them in the pond at number eight. <laughs> I'm sure they have, and also number seven. Yeah, uh, right before it. 
Yeah, the thing is, obviously, the T complex, the you know, the back T's or whatever you do to have that to man carry. But as you go across that dam, that whole dam is a T, and you get to the point at the end of the dam where you don't even have to go across the water. Right, and that's the biggest thing in these the. You know, people ask me, uh, you know, what's changed from the beginning when you did some of these courses in Hot Springs Village to now? Well, initially when we built Cortez and I guess when Mr. Alt built DeSoto, it was the era of what was called the runway T. It was one T. And on that T was the blue marker, the white marker, and the red marker. Now, I... You know, as I said, I only say this to tell the truth. Mr. Ald at the time really didn't believe much in having women play golf. Um, He was old school. So there was never a forward tee on any of his courses. So that's how I made a living along with his son. We had a lot of forward tees over the years. Um, But the long and short of that is we started realizing in golf that there are five or six different variables as far as the professional, the scratch golfer, the average golfer, the senior golfer, the senior lady, the, uh, you know, the forward tees. And we even now have what we call um, family tees. So the new courses, and I think Granada probably reflects that, you know, it might be 7,200 or something from the very backs, but, you know, you can go all the way down to 4,400. I mean, I just finished a course last year, which I'd worked on for 22 years in Virginia, and it's 7,450 from the back tees, and it's 4,300 from the front, and there's five tees in between. So that's how you satisfy today's golfer and why, you know, you're in a, quote, retirement community, but not everybody's a retiree. You have some young people that live there. Uh, the commute, you know, to Little Rock or whatever. You have people that want to be challenged. Um, And that's what, you know, we tried to give the variety of all these courses. And I think therein lies the, you know, Coronado, which is an executive course. And, you know, I talked recently with John Paul about maybe even adding another set of tees to make it a par three for, you know, those who want to play this a par three. Um, and then, you know, the, um, I guess Magellan is just what I call a very short regulation course. So, and then you have, you know, the Isabellas and the Granadas that are Champ and Ponce. Um, you know, they're, you know, big boy, big girl courses. And if they are basically, uh, you know, developed with the right amount of tees, they're good for everybody. And, you know, everybody can enjoy it. And that's, I think, what reflects so much now of the thinking. I'm sure that over the years, there's been, you know, some additional tees added here or there. Uh, I know my thinking now is basically that is one of the caveats is to make the whole project successful is the T placement. Then it has to do with how do you make every golf course different? Uh, And it has a lot to do with, you know, the thoughtfulness of, you know, the green designs, the bunkering, 
um, you know, the variety of holes, dog leg left, dog legs right. You don't uh, basically make this for one single person who fades the ball. Everyone has to be accommodated. And each course really reflects that. Now, Magellan is an interesting uh, quick story. Um, they, you know, as I said, when we first started developing these courses or whatever, the practice areas were considered, but they weren't really big. So you didn't have a really big practice facility in the village. Well, you had a couple of very good teaching pros and they, you know, wanted to develop their own uh, learning center. And I think Cooper said, well, we can accommodate that and you know, make it part of ours. So I was asked to develop a proposal or whatever for a, you know, what would be a learning center, which would really be a huge driving range and three practice holes, a chipping area, a putting area where you could actually come with a golf academy, in other words. Well, that's how Magellan started. And um, I don't know how successful that was, but it was a few years afterwards that they had actually built it on their own. And, you know, it, I think it served well, but uh, obviously there wasn't, I guess, the calling for that much uh, instruction. And Cooper said, ah, we're going to actually develop this. Well, that's a tight little golf course. And what I mean by that is the property um, was challenging, to say the least. Uh, some of the holes, um, literally, you know, as I said, uh, I don't want to say archetype, but they were very, you know, demanding contours. And they didn't get like a huge yield, I don't think, of home site development around that golf course. But as I said, they did develop it. And it's another, you know, course that, you know, is a variety. It's like, you know, it's not a par three. It's not an executive. But, you know, as I said, it's certainly a challenging little golf course. Then, as I said, the uh, big change out there was I got approached um, with Diamante. And, you know, they said, we are going to actually develop a private course within the gates here of Hot Springs Village. Well, it was a different concept, to say the least, but it was the first thing or time I'd ever heard, well, we don't really care about the budget. I'm like, oh, <laughs> really? Um, you know, and I'm so used, as I said, I grew up, you know, in my professional career with a very frugal golf architect. And, you know, I couldn't spend over three or four million dollars to develop a golf course. But they said, oh, well, you know, we can have aggregate paths and quadruple row irrigation. And, you know, and that is a course that, you know, has a funny story also, because I said we finally merged into the era of getting golf course builders involved. And we actually went out for bids on Diamante and a company called Landscapes Unlimited, which is probably the largest golf builder in the world, um, negotiated a contract and built that course. Well, it was kind of funny because when I do the plans, I draw up a green and maybe 6,000 square feet and I put what's called a collar area and stuff around it. 
Well, they assumed that the collar was all going to be putting surface or, you know, green cavity. So where I started out with a 6,000 square foot grain became an 8,000 square foot grain. And then, uh, you know, as I said, Ernie uh, was involved in that project with me and kept saying, well, I think we can have the longest course in Arkansas. And at the time, Mr. Alt had built a course called Maumel. And he literally, you know, had the, I guess, quote, the longest course in Arkansas. And we said, well, we'll make, you know, Diamani a little bit longer. And I don't know if you heard the history. Uh, John Daly was going to be my design consultant. Uh, and we actually started off with our 10th and 1st tees. Uh, we called them the Daily Double. And, you know, they were the back tees. And we stretched that golf course out, you know, quite a ways to, I don't know if it's 7,600 yards long, but it beat Maumel. And, uh, and the greens were gigantic. And as I said, uh, we solid sodded the fairways to zoysia grass, which was, you know, and I said we had aggregate cart paths. And it was, you know, it was a, uh, what can I say, a credit to Cooper to, you know, basically uh, what can, build one of the most beautiful courses in the state. And it became like the number one course in the state for I don't know how many years. Um, so that was an interesting um, you know, I guess, period. But soon after that, and this is kind of a funny story that I feel blessed that, you know, the Cooper family kept me involved, you know, in the projects. They hired what they called one of their bean counters that had to look after the finances for all these new developments. They said, we're going to build uh, four new courses this coming year, Tom. And we got one, I think it was in Hot Springs, which may have been Isabella, and one down in Tennessee, and one over in McCormick, South Carolina, and one up in Branson, Missouri. And, uh, you know, you've done wonderful work for us, but we think we need to branch out and get some other architects. And uh, could you give us some names? <laughs> well, that was a loaded question. Uh, of course, I gave them Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer and Tom Fazio, and uh, they all wanted over a million dollars per course. Well, I think our we were still about 150000 or something. They said, well, you've got the work, I think, Tom, for all four of them, because <laughs> we, you know, I have to pay too much money, so... I love when people um, say, I love was, when people say money's not an object right up until it's an object, you know? Right. And I think, you know, they also realized that I could get the courses built for, you know, their budget, which is a huge thing that, you know, uh, I think all the years, you know, we give a perspective master plan and budget, you know, for a golf course. And I don't think we've ever been, uh, more than five to six percent, you know, uh, over that budget, uh, if if ever over, because you know, as I said, that's a huge way to keep a client happy. Um, does not have a lot of you know um, change orders and things that affect obviously the bottom line, because then it gets passed on to the consumer. They'd rather you know keep the lots you know flowing, and they did. As I said. 
Cooper's sales force was second to none, and I've never seen anything like it since. And uh, of all the then, you know, as Tom, I said, uh, Tom, of all the communities, ahead, of all the communities that you've done, what's special about Hot Springs Village in your estimation? How does it stand out well, from all the other communities that you've done? I, you know, between you and I, my partner, Brian, um, Mr. Alden's father, well, the three of us were actually partners, but he passed away, Mr. Alden. Brian, you know, had a, I guess, a um, temperament that he could handle people from New Jersey and New York. I couldn't. So I went south and I went west. And one thing I liked so much about Hot Springs Village and working out in that area were the people. That was number one. Uh, number two is basically Hot Springs, the, the pines. I mean, it was just to me, I grew up, my family used to vacation every year up in Maine or Canada. And it was like the lakes and pines, you know, reminded me of you know, that ambiance or, you know, it just, uh, I love the smell of Hot Springs Village. I also liked the thinking, the um, progressive thinking. In other words, it was like, you know, why just build a crappy old clubhouse? Let's get Faye Jones to build a clubhouse here at DeSoto, uh, which is, you know, this was a name. This wasn't just, you know, uh, Joe Smith, that was basically a Faye Jones, you know, clubhouse. And they did that at Bella Vista also. And the entrance, I mean, it was like with the water features and everything. So it spoke of, my God, you get in here. And then, of course, you know, it, it was like, you know, the homes were set back. So far, you didn't feel like when you were playing golf that you were in a residential development because you always had, you know, um, a landscape buffer. Uh, you know, there was covenants that said you can't build your house right here on the property line. You have to have so much of a setback. Um, so the courses felt wide. And from a golfer's perspective, what they hate, you know, and there's many, of course, in Florida and stuff that doesn't have a couple palm trees and then a house there and you're hitting it down Broadway and you're going to, you know, be out of bounds on a third of the holes. Well, here you had room to play. You had room to roam. I mean, you know, Cooper, you know, I believe they're all private roads. I don't think they were um, because there's some real humps and bumps in some of those roads. And it was just, you know, I heard at one time they, actually pave more roads than the state of Arkansas every year in Hot Springs Village. So it was just, um, and also, you know, the people I worked with, um, they had a, a crew down there that, um, you know, with their engineers and, you know, who I would meet with on my inspection visits. And, you know, we were, you know, always a, like a family approach. It was like a team. So Hot Springs, as I said, was as I said near and dear. Um, Bella Vista was also, you know, something very important, but it had the highway through it. I mean, it just, you know, that was like a big slice that took away a lot of what I call the ambiance, where 
hot springs you drove in and now you can drive all the way you know i guess through to the east gate and it's just um you know there's the main corridor does as i recall does not have homes directly off of it it was well thought out and they didn't you know what can i say maximize or try to maximize the um yield I mean, so many developments, you know, they buy, you know, X amount of acres and they're going to get every damn, you know, lot that they can on it at the, you know, uh, cost of the ambiance and the beauty and uh, the golf is going to suffer. But, you know, Cooper had always taken an approach uh, of um, literally keeping, uh, you know, the houses separate. Uh, they built, you know, some very nice, um, like different models of homes. And, you know, when they did some of the, uh, their own development within the community, uh, cause I stayed in some of those units from time to time. I mean, I even took when our, uh, you know, um, company at one time, aside from myself and my partner, um, we had five or six young architects working for us. We had, uh, and they wanted to, you know, get a, an idea of what we'd done over the years. So I took them to Hot Springs Village to play golf. And that was the variety and say, okay, this is the first course that Mr. Allman worked on, DeSoto. And then here's one at Cortez. And, you know, and then we went through the whole gamut. We played for, you know, five days and a couple of times we played 36 holes. But even the grasses, you know, were different. I mean, this was, you know, common Bermuda and this was, you know, Pencross. That was the old course. And now we're up to, you know, these new varieties of bent grass and these hybrid, um, you know, um, fairways and everything that are um, sprigged. So it just basically, uh, to me, spells success. And I think... The, the good thing is when I met John Paul uh, as, you know, the director, I guess, of golf and grounds, that he had a, a group of really good golf course superintendents who took care of these courses. And in their heyday, I mean, they were doing 300 and some thousand rounds and meaning like 40, some 50,000 rounds a year. And it's not easy to maintain a course that has that kind of pressure on it. Uh, I think some of that is lessened, um, but it's all about, you know, trying to maintain and keep quality people um, on those courses. And Hot Springs always had that. They had quality people and they had well-maintained golf courses. And then, you know, as I said, we started, you know, anything you build, it's like a building. It has to be maintained, and sometimes you have to remodel it. Well, we started with DeSoto. So I got to remodel, you know, the first course, you know, that my predecessor at all had done. And then we worked on Cortez. Uh, and then we were, you know, and they still do Balboa. It's just, you know, you've got to put back into it uh, what you've taken away from it. You know, there's so many nuances that have happened in uh, our profession as far as 
our bunkers. I mean, we have these liners now, hard liners that the sand doesn't move and you don't have to, you know, replace the sand or top the sand off every year or so. And, you know, the irrigation systems have improved dramatically. So the courses needed upgrading and they literally uh, had developed a group of construction people that, you know, went out and fixed things. And that was one of the great things that kept Hot Springs separated from so many other places. Um, the other thing, obviously, is the multiple courses. I mean, I'm a golfer. I love playing my own course when I just finished, but I like playing other courses. And, you know, which leads me to, a you know, another story I've done, obviously, through Cooper, probably been introduced to so many other projects in the state. Um, you know, there was mountain ranch, you know, in the middle of the state and big Creek up there in mountain home and, um, Repsom and remodeling the little rock country club. I remodeled twice and then thunder Bayou up there. So I said to you, I think earlier that I have did the math one time and I've spent over three years of my life in Arkansas and I've never lived there a day. So that's why how much I care, you know, I guess about the state. It's just a great place to build golf courses because of the terrain. Well, I, got, and, as I said, over there, go ahead. No, I, I apologize. And I know our time's getting tight here and I want to wrap up on a couple of things. You, you've talked about so many things and I have a million questions. My first question is, would you entertain being on for part two? Could we have you back? Well, and you don't have to research right away. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Tom, say that, say that again. I said, if we just follow this right up, it's, it's <laughs> good no, absolutely, absolutely. I'd be happy to come back. We, we would love now that, I, now that I'm, uh, you know, qualified to, you know, answer zoom and, you know, get that up and running. Thanks to Randy. Yeah. Well, you, we helped. We, I hope we helped. Well, I was going to say you were talking about, Oh the, yes. The, big time. <laughs> well, so many things have changed. So many things have changed and I'm trying to, in my mind, grasp, from 1987 to 2022 to, you know, all of the things in between. And, you know, we have the first T that you and Daly helped put together in, in Little Rock. We have, you know, like you say, the Rebsman remodel. And I lived on Maumelle. I know what the Country Club of Arkansas is like. I mean, so many of these places, I, I, I've been that close to you and never known it, you know, I'm just that, that close away. But one of the things that comes to my mind is, as you say, people, I'd never heard of the concept of a three-hole, but, you know, to come back to the clubhouse. And I was amazed to me back in the 2000s, it was novel to have three number nines like we do on Isabella. Was that to ease up pressure on the course? Was that to make, I mean, how many people play 27 a day? Am I, am I just out of the touch or what? Well, Isabella, as you know, the first 18 was done. Uh, the second, it was going to be a second 18. And then the Property Owners Association was actually a participant in the um, development of these courses. And they were asked, you know, they didn't want another 18 holes. So I think what happened there, they built nine and then they literally built three lakes. Um, and as I said, for instance, Granada, I believe was going to be the second Diamante. Uh, and, you know, Cooper may have said, oh, we don't really want a second Diamante, another private course. 
we're just going to basically, and I don't know, and that's part of what I said, some of the research I was attempting to do, I don't know all the stories. And unfortunately, a lot of the people who I knew are no longer with us. Um, I mean, John Cooper III, I know is still there and he's still there. Uh, Randy Brucker, who was uh, very instrumental in a lot of this, is gone. Um, not from this earth, but he's no longer with Cooper. And, you know, as I said, that's um, part of the interesting research. And I'm sure your podcast gets a lot of this uncovered because um, there's a lot of history there at Hot Springs Village. No question about it. Randy, I'm going to let you have the last one. Yeah, too many. I'm going to save mine. I'm going to save mine for part two. Um, but I, I've, I've got I've got to I've got to express thanks. And before we hit record, you know, Tom and I were talking about this whole legacy stuff, Dennis, and and I told him that a large part of what Dennis and I are setting out to do, Tom, is to do this: is to try to preserve some of this history, some of these firsthand stories. Um, so I'm real appreciative to you, and real appreciative to John Paul for making the introduction. Well, and I want to, in that name, and I showed this to Tom just a minute ago before we hit record, this is a, a mauve jacket. Now, now, ladies and men, do not be envious because this was offered to me by someone at the POA, and I'm going to pull this up just a second here, and I'm going to show you. See, there's a Hot Springs Village logo, and you say, well, that's pretty cool, Hot Springs Village on a men's blazer. Apparently, according to what we were told, and I'd heard this many times before, if you showed up at the DeSoto Club, designed by Tom, uh, 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 by uh, Faye Jones, who was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright, if you showed up there and you did not have a jacket on for the evening, this was required evening attire. Everybody had to have a jacket, and they would lend you one. So, yeah, we're trying to pull them out of the closet, and I, the, the stories are fascinating. And I, Tom, we cannot thank you enough for today, sincerely. Uh, we're going to come back around. We've got a ton more questions. Actually, for our, I would like to thank our, our listeners and viewers. And for those that are listening and viewing, if you've got questions, send them to us. We will get round two for Mr. Tom ready. And I guarantee you the questions won't stop. We're not going to run out of material, right, Randy? No, no. I, I told Tom I mean, the, the reaction that we've gotten, Tom, from golfers as well as non-golfers. But to your point and Cooper's point, those of us that just love the manicured you know, view of a golf course. I mean, when people heard not necessarily your name, cause some folks didn't know many did, which frankly surprised me. But when folks knew that we were going to be talking to the, the fellow that architected the golf courses, it was, oh yeah, eyes got, eyes got wide and, uh, yeah, it's been great. Attention went through the roof. Yep. Well, I appreciate you having me on and, uh, over the years, I think that's one of the things. A lot of the courses, the name of our firm was all Clark and Associates, and I just assumed that um, you know it was a company that did this. But as I said, I was very fortunate to be an individual that got to work on all those courses, and uh, I'm so happy I did. And uh, well, it's, it's your legacy, my friend. Uh, I think basically. it is. This is it's absolutely fantastic. And I want to tell you just just. I'm just asking, I'm just asking, I'm guessing you're not working for $9,000 a year anymore. And I'm guessing you're not going to design me a golf course for $6,000, right? <laughs> no, well, the I am still no. working. <laughs> and yes, uh, the answer is no. But as I said, um, some of that old, Mr. Alt, the old German mentality or whatever, as I said, it was 
almost impossible to come from $6,000 to, you know, the million dollar fee. Yeah. And, uh, trust me, I've never got there yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, for Hot Springs Village Inside Out, thank you for joining us Mister today, Mr. Tom Clark. We will be back. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hot Springs Village Inside Out, a podcast where Hot Springs Village, Arkansas is the star. Please subscribe to the podcast. You can do that by visiting our website, hsvinsideout.com, and tell a friend.